0: We all eventually come to a crossroads with the church where we ask ourselves, does this matter? Does what we do here on Sundays actually make a difference in my life Monday through Saturday? Does tuning in online actually make a difference in my life? Because if it doesn't, well, I might as well just not tune in at all and I might as well just go out and get brunch with my friends or sleep in. Or maybe just take this extra time to get ready for the next work week. What is the church for? If we can answer that question, all of these swirling pieces around us about whether this matters and why we tune in when we'd rather sleep in will all fall into place. And that's what we're talking about in this series we're in called Rethinking Church. The main idea behind this series is that the church is the center of the movement of God. And as the center of the movement of God, as the centerpiece be- behind what God is doing in the world, the church throughout time and the church today exists to give ourselves away back to God in worship, each other in community, and the people of Kansas City and beyond in mission. Worship, community, and mission. Those are the three core practices and values of this church and the church global. Worship, community, and mission. Those are the practices that come in the center of the movement of God. In the answer to that question, what is the church for, are those three words. Worship, community, and mission. To give ourselves to God, each other, in the world. And last week we kicked off this series with an overview of how the early church, uh, looking specifically at the book of Acts in chapter 2, and we looked at how the early church practiced these three things. And today we're sort of going to dive deeper into, into these practices that we see in Acts 2 that started to take shape in the church. Over the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at each one. Today we'll look at worship, to, uh, next week we'll look at community, and the week after mission. And last week, though, we talked about the great impact the church has had throughout history because of these practices and why they each matter for us today. And like I said, starting today, we will look at worship. The church exists to give ourselves to God in worship. That's the big idea of today. And in one word, that is what the gathered church is for. That is why we meet together. That is why we tune in online on Sundays or wherever, whenever day you're watching this for worship. As the church, worship is our first and highest priority, central to who we are and everything we do. Now, the word worship is a word that may be familiar to some and and foreign to others. We may have grown up in all different kinds of places and heard that word used in a multitude of different ways. So what is worship? Let's get on the same page before we move forward. Let's define it. Though the Bible doesn't give a formal definition of worship, we can sort of parse out the word worship to discover what it means. So the English word worship comes from two old English words. Worth, which means worth, in or ship, which means something like shape or quality. Worth in sip. Understanding how the Old English worth ship is used in other modern words, it, that'll help us understand what worship means. Take, for instance, the word friendship. If ship, like we just said, means like the shape or quality, what does friendship mean if you parse it out? It's the quality of being a friend. Or the shape of being a friend, what a friend looks like. Or take the word sportsmanship. Again, if ship means quality, sportsmanship means the quality of being a good sport. So worthship, if you parse it out, means the quality of having worth or of being worthy. So when we worship, we are saying that God has worth, that God is worthy. Worship means to declare worth, to attribute worth to God. It's to respond to all God is with all we are by sitting in silence because he is too great for our words to capture. Or by speaking to others about the difference that God has made in our lives or singing about our hope or dancing out of the overflow of joy because God has rescued us. Or it's writing about how good or powerful God is or responding with our bodies by fasting or falling on our knees in surrender to him because all he is is all we want. And so to put it in the definition, worship is giving to God what we know he is worthy of receiving from us based on who he is and what he's done. And what God is worth is nothing short of the whole of our lives. God is worthy of everything we have to give. It's why Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. An essential part of our calling as the church is to do just that. To respond to who God is with all we are by offering up our bodies to him, the whole of our lives to him, to declare in this surrender that God is worthy and there is nothing we want to hold us back from his presence. Psalm 29, 1 through 2 gets at worship in a great way when it says this, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship is responding to God as our creator by giving ourselves over to him because he has fashioned us in love. It's offering up our lives to him because he is our redeemer who rescues us from death and wants to use our lives to participate in his mission. It's giving up our finances and our resources because God has been so generous to us and so on and so forth. And worship is not something we can do alone. We can, or worship is something we can do alone, excuse me. We can give ourselves over to God in the evenings alone while we're out walking our dogs. Or we can give ourselves over to God in the mornings by reading scripture and, and praying or before a meal and, or when we are, you are tending to a garden or you're cooking food or driving to work. You can worship, you can give yourself over to God, give God all that you know he is worth because of who he is and what he's done when you are all alone. But today... I want to focus on more what it means for us to worship together. What does it mean to tune in to Restore Online with other people and worship alongside other people? Because at its core, that is what the gathered church is for. The gathered church exists for us to worship God together, that he might make us together something, or make us together what we cannot be alone. And there are many ways we can worship God together, many ways we do that on these mornings or, or whenever you're tuning in, through giving of our finances and resources, through listening to, to sermons and the word of God spoken over us, through the way we talk with one another or, or welcome other people and, and watch it maybe at home with other people. But the way we worship God when we gather together that I want to hone in on today is through singing. We worship God when we gather together through in a ton of different ways, but we also do this through singing, and that is what I want to highlight today. The gathered church matters because it's the place where we give ourselves over to God in worship through singing together. The people of God have always been a people who give themselves over to God through song. We see this in the ancient Hebrew people. There's a whole song book in the Old Testament called the Book of Proverbs that were used in the Hebrew people for their gathered worship. In Psalm 59, we read, But I will sing of your strength in the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. We see singing also in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 15, after the Israelites are rescued, we read this, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And the pages of the New Testament are also littered with singing. The Apostle Paul, he's thrown into jail once with his partner Silas, and we read about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Later, Paul would go on to write this about singing. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What we see in this survey through Scripture It's how the people of God throughout time have been a singing people. And this is something you see in those verses that they primarily did with other people together. A big reason why we gather for worship is to sing together. And now what does our singing actually do? When we worship God through song, what are we doing? Why do we do this? In Acts 2, we see the answer. In Acts 2:42 through 23, we get our first window into the Christian church's gathered worship. And we read about four practices that they do together when they get together. And although in Luke's writings, these are sort of four distinct practices of worship, we can sort of take a step back and put on the lens of examining through what does it mean to sing and worship through singing. And we can see how actually when we gather together to sing, these four practices that we see the early church do, we also are doing through our singing. We see how singing does these four things for us as well. Acts 2.42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, praising God. So the early church gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to meet together, and Luke tells us they do these four acts. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they fellowship, they break bread, and they pray. So let's look at these practices through the lens of singing and see how they matter for our worship today. So number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now believe it or not, When you gather together on a Sunday morning to sing, when we do that, when you tune in online and sing, you are being taught. The songs you are singing are teaching you about who God is, about what Jesus has done for you, about how that changes us, and all kinds of other things. And in some ways, the songs we sing together, they actually teach us maybe more than the actual teaching does, than this moment does. Like you are more likely to remember what you sing with others than what you hear in a lecture. Just think about how songs are often used to teach people. Think of the alphabet song or the school of rock or other nursery rhymes. Those are made because educators know that song, the rhythm and the rhyme of it, it teaches us quicker and deeper than a lecture does. And the same is true on Sunday mornings. The songs we sing together when we gather as the church are teaching us. And so we aim to sing songs that teach us what the apostles have been saying throughout Scripture all along. We aim to sing songs that are saying true things that are in line with the great tradition of faith that have been passed down by the apostles. To sing things that teach us about the good news of the gospel that God has sent Jesus to come in our place and die on our behalf and rise again, that we might have life and life to the full on this side of life. Throughout church history, there's been a Latin saying that pastors and scholars and lay people alike would say, and it's this, lex rendi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, which translates, as we worship, so we believe, so we live. Our singing together, it teaches us what to believe. It teaches us when, when we worship to sing together, we are being taught what to believe and ultimately we are being taught how to live. When we sing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God, oh, how he chases me down in the song Reckless Love, we are being taught that God, He his love overflows and he pursues us constantly and we can live in that reality at rest everywhere we go because we know that we are a child of God and that is the most true thing about us. And so this is the first thing worship through song does for us. It teaches us together what to believe so that it might change us so that we can learn how to live. Number two, fellowship. In Greek, this is the word koinonia, and it has to do with uh, having things in common, sharing. And there are two levels to this really when Luke writes this word. There's sharing fellowship with each other, more on that next week, But there's also this other piece of this word about sharing fellowship with God. When we gather together to worship on Sundays, we are sharing fellowship with God. When you tune in online, you are sharing fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In the early church's worship, they believed when they gathered with others, they would share the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in a unique way that they would not when they were alone. It's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians when he writes this, Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See the Hebrew people, they used to gather together in the temple to worship God to sing their songbook of the Psalms and be reminded of their teachings, that God rescued them out of Egypt and delivered them into the promised land, and that one day he would send his Messiah to rescue them fully. And we believe, as followers of Jesus, that this reached its climax in him. And so what Paul is doing in this verse from Ephesians is he's picking up on this idea of temple imagery and says in this verse that on the other side of Jesus' resurrection and the reception of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God is now in you. It's in you. And now it would be easy for us to misunderstand Paul and individualize this reference or the one from Corinthians that says your body is a temple for the Spirit. And there's something true about that. Hear me say that that the Holy Spirit dwells within you individually. But most of the time, when the New Testament uses temple imagery about the church, it is plural language. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying, yes, you are the temple of the living God when the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But more than that, you all, the church, the church together, us together, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this sense in which we can't just talk about the presence of God in an ethereal and abstract way. No, the presence of God is more concrete than that. It goes hand in hand with the people of God. The presence of God shows up wherever the people of God are. And the people of God all throughout history, they had a place. In the Old Testament, that place was the tabernacle, and the tent of meeting, and the temple. And for us, it's the church. And it could be an actual physical church or it could be the church that you gather with online here. Regardless of where it is, we need a common place where we can meet together with others to worship, to give ourselves over to God, trusting that something unique happens when we tune in online to restore online together that does not happen when we are alone. The author, Raniero Contala Mesa, he captures it well when he writes this. He says, on the cross, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At every worship service, it's as if that last unceasing breath of Jesus returned to hover over us, to move as it were the air and fill the congregation with Christ's presence. We need a place because we believe that when we come together, the Holy Spirit fills the atmosphere in a way that does not happen when we are alone. When we worship together, something about us all giving ourselves over to God at the same time, whether you're scattered throughout the country or throughout the city here in Kansas City watching online, regardless of when it is, when we gather together with others, we know that God's presence joins us in a unique way. We fellowship with the triune God in a unique way. That's why all throughout history, the people of God have got together. The belief that God exists outside of the building, that's not new in the New Testament. The Jewish people believed God was everywhere and we could encounter him in all places. But they held that sort of in this tension with the fact that something unique, though, happens when we get together with others to encounter him. And if we walk away from that belief, we walk away from a practice the people of God have had since the foundation of the cosmos in the Garden of Eden, all throughout the Old Testament, through Jesus to our day and age today. When we gather together to worship, we fellowship as a family with God. That's number two. Number three, they broke bread together. Part of the reason the gathered church was, important, uh, was so important to the earliest Christians was it was the place that they would come together to take communion. Communion. In the temple, they'd be reminded of Passover, but on the other side of the resurrection, Christians were to remember what the Passover ultimately was pointing to. The ultimate Passover, where Jesus, the true lamb, was slain that we might attain the freedom that can never be taken away from us. And gathering together in worship is the time where we do exactly that, where we do what Jesus said to do, as stated by Paul, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that word remembrance, it meant more to them than just thinking about the past and then remembering dead Jesus. (laughs) It was more about bringing the past into the present, remembering that Jesus did not just die and rise in the past in history, but that the resurrected Jesus is active and alive right now. We remember him not just in history, but right now when we celebrate communion, and that is meant to be a celebration. See, and we always celebrate big events with songs. Birthdays, Chiefs games, uh, Uh, Christmas, we celebrate events with songs. When we can't keep the excitement or the love or the emotion inside, what comes out of us is singing. And when we come to communion, To remember the risen Christ who is alive and well and seated at the right hand of the Father. When we remember the gospel that through his blood and his body, death has been defeated and sin is forgiven and evil is vanquished. That is not meant to just be this like somber moment. It is meant to be a celebration of resurrection. A rehearsal and reminder of the hope that we have. Glenn Packiam writes, Christians are those who believe that because Jesus was raised from the dead, the worst day will not be the last day. So we sing. And that's why we sing when we take communion. We're singing to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We sing out declaring with our voices that Jesus is Lord. And then lastly, number four, prayer. Ultimately, everything we sing is also our prayer. That's why the songbook of the Old Testament, the Psalms, is also called the prayer book, like we said earlier. When we sing in worship, we are praying, asking God through the lyrics to move, have his way, change us, remind us of his goodness, and so on. We're reaching out for someone outside of the self to speak to us and hear us and move in our lives. And the collective aspect of that is really important. Because what happens if you're in a place where you don't really feel what you're singing as prayers? When you're walking through a difficult season and you don't believe God is good or kind. And you don't feel like you can really trust him to save you, but that's what you have to keep singing. What do you do in those moments when that's what you're praying through the songs? When you're singing these songs that you don't really know if you can believe. You gather with others. And you hear others singing words you may have a hard time believing. And that may look like just watching the worship band sing those songs on a Sunday like today or whatever day you're watching this. That is why singing with others is crucial because we need the presence of others to awaken our faith when it feels lacking. When we are confused, we need to see those with confidence in the gathering and vice versa. When we can't pray on our own, we need to hear those alongside of us praying. We need to join our voices with others to be reminded that we are not alone. Eugene Peterson writes, Feelings are great liars. If Christians only worshipped when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity of it. But the wisdom of God says something different, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that's expressed in an act of worship. And that's what our singing does for us. We sing our way into affection for God, and when we cannot barely stomach the words, we hear the words falling effortlessly from the mouths of our neighbors. We watch them falling from the mouths of someone online. Or we hear the the tone-deaf singing of another person who might be singing at home with us, and we join our voice to theirs, and the faith of this person awakens ours, and ours awakens theirs. This is our fellowship with each other and with God. We need to sing with others. We need the multiracial, multiethnic, multilinguistic, and generational choruses of voices to be reminded of our hope. And the science agrees with scripture on this one. According to a trio of researchers, studies show that after a group singing session, oxytocin, the chemical in your brain that makes you feel happy, it increases significantly for the people singing. Singing together makes us feel better. It's almost as if God wired this into our brains from the beginning because he knew that we often needed the singing of another to remind us that the darkness is not final. The joy comes in the morning. And he wired it into our neural circuits so we wouldn't just know it, but would feel it. As we pray with others through songs, our hearts are stirred and our hope is awakened. So when we gather together to sing and worship, these are the four things that are happening, that are uniquely happening and have been happening throughout all of history. We are devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And Paul continues on after these verses to give us a picture of what the response of these gatherings was like. He writes, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, praising God. When was the last time you spent time in a gathering feeling like that? Or sat tuning in online, feeling overcome by God's presence and just wanting to sing out, being filled with awe, praising God? I once heard a story from the director of the organization called 24-7 Prayer named Pete Gregg of a gathering like this. His organization, 24-7 Prayer, they were a little, they're more charismatic bent. So when they get together with other people to worship, there's a lot more singing and jumping and uh, dancing and waving their arms around and all of that stuff. It's this great joy. And one time they had a gathering in a beautiful Catholic cathedral, beautiful cathedral. And For them to have this gathering there, the priests that were sort of in charge and led this chapel had to go to their worship gathering just to make sure none of the artifacts that were in this ancient cathedral got broken. And the prayer gathering and the worship gathering happened and things took off and everybody kind of joined in on the worship like they typically do, dancing and singing and being overcome by the joy. And as the songs went on, these priests eventually joined them, leading the charge with dancing and with joy, and with wonder. The people that you normally would think would maybe be standing there a little bit more serious during the worship, they joined in on the joy. And it became this beautiful gathering where all of these people were filled with awe and they were praising God together. People from all different crosses of the church spectrum, of the stream of denominations. And what if we could recapture that spirit in the moments where we feel it with all of our life and in the moments when we don't feel it? So here's the invitation. In just a second, we're going to worship through singing together while we celebrate communion. And during this song, what I invite you to do is to give yourself to God by doing something you might not normally do during the worship portion. Maybe you raise your hands. Maybe you dance. Maybe you clap just to the song, or maybe you kneel. Just do something with your body that you might not normally do as we engage in this song of worship. So let me pray, and then I'll lead us into communion. Father, thank you for giving yourself over to us. Help us to be a people who give ourselves back to you in worship, who give the whole of our lives to you, but specifically who have no shame when we sing to you. We give ourselves over freely to you through song. It's the Christ I pray. Amen. Now, celebrate communion together. And like I said, it is a celebration, an event that we remember of the current rule and reign of Jesus as King of the whole entire universe. And as the band leads us in a song, I invite you to engage in this singing in a way that you might not normally. So, when you're ready, you can take the elements and let's join the band in song.